I would invite you to take your Bibles, if you have them, on whatever form you have them, and turn to the book of Ruth that we just read from. We are looking at the book of Ruth as a four-act drama, and so we are in Act 2. A groundbreaking book that has become a timeless read, published in 1978, was entitled The Road Less Traveled. It was written by the late M. Scott Peck. The opening three-word sentence of this particular book sets the tone for the entire book. Thank you. Sets the tone for the, the entire book. The sentence is simply this. Life is difficult. And the premise of the book is that instead of avoiding the difficulties of life, we need to learn to move through them. The fuller opening of that timeless work is this. Life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Last week, we were introduced to two of the three main characters of this drama that we call Ruth. We were introduced to Naomi, whose husband Elimelech had died, and we were introduced to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who was also a widow and a Moabite. She was not an Israelite. I believe both women would have agreed if they would have known about Dr. Peck back then that, yes, life is difficult. They were facing a difficult life. And yet, as we've seen so far, the difficulty of that life has done two things. To this point, it's caused Naomi to almost shut down. Her name, Naomi, meant gentle and pleasant, but then she came to Bethlehem and she says, call me Mara, bitter. Her life was bitter. God's turned his hand against me. Life is difficult. I quit. But Ruth is so different. Ruth left her homeland, left her country, left her gods, left her religion, committed everything to Naomi, even to, as we saw last week, being willing to be buried where Naomi was buried. She forsook it all, and she would say, life is difficult, but I'm going to try to move forward. And, and the moving forward was, I'm going to move forward with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Life is difficult. We have the privilege of already knowing how the story is going to end. Uh, and yet one thing I've been trying to do when I study very familiar passages, I, I try to set aside my filters. I try to set aside things that I knew in the past. I try to set aside even knowing the conclusion. I do my best to say, how can I approach this text as if I've never seen it before? And I want to approach Act 2 in the drama entitled Ruth, as if we're approaching it for the first time. Before the curtain opens on Act 2, Scene 1, we're given some background. The narrator tells us that Naomi had a relative, a relative on her husband's side. That is such a significant detail. Don't run by that detail. Because Naomi, as a woman who's now a widow, who has no sons, does not have the right to inherit the property of her husband. And, and so she is completely destitute. She is relying 100% on the community to take care of her. But if she had sons, then they would have inherited her husband's property. 
However, they are dead. And yet there's hope. The narrator gives us a glimmer of hope. She has a relative on her husband's side. And he's not just any old guy. He's a man of standing. That means he's a man of importance. He's a man of respect in the community. He's a landholder, so he's a man of wealth. And we're given his name, Boaz. And then we know nothing else. That's all we know. And then the curtain comes up. And the curtain comes up, and there are Ruth and Naomi in wherever place they are lodging. And Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi is doing nothing about her situation. And don't hear me getting hard on her. Who can blame her? Her, She just has no clue where to go from here. She has nothing. But Ruth says, let me. As as her daughter-in-law, Ruth says, I know I need to step up. And so she doesn't step up and say, I'm going to go out and take care of this. She shows respect to her mother-in-law. She asks if she can go. She doesn't declare what she's going to do. Remember, at the end of scene of Act 1, we were told it was barley harvest. And so Ruth wants to go and do what was available to the poor. And I believe not just in Israel. Israel had codified in their law gleaning. But gleaning was known throughout the, the ancient Near East as a way to take care of the poor. And so she was going to go and uh, go behind the harvesters and pick up whatever stalks, whatever little bits of grain she could, just to try to cobble together some food and to be able to take it home and grind it and make bread. We read this in verse 3. Naomi said, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out. Hmm. I want to introduce you to a term, maybe you've heard me use it before. Charlene and I were introduced to it many years ago. Uh, and, And it's one of those terms that does not take God out of the equation. You see, if we take God out of the equation here in Ruth, if we just remove God, we would all say, Ruth got a lucky break. Wow, just as it turned out, just so happened. Lucky for Ruth, the stars were aligned. No, not at all. God is at work, and God is always part of the equation. God is always at work, and sometimes it's evident, sometimes we know it's the hand of God, and other times we don't because sometimes God's work is right in front of us, and sometimes God's work is quiet behind the scenes. It's that quiet, behind-the-scenes work that we've grown to call divine orchestration. Let me give you a definition. It's going to be here behind me. It's a lengthy one. But divine orchestration is God's behind-the-scenes arranging the events and connections of my life that grant me the choice to join him in his work. Note a couple things about this definition. God is arranging in different ways, but God also gives us choice in the matter. Think about it this way. 
maybe you've been down and had the privilege of going downtown and seeing Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I have had that privilege. I love going and hearing the orchestra. Maybe for you it's been over at Wheaton College for their Christmas event. Or maybe it's even been a, a, you know, one of the advanced high school uh, orchestras that your kids are at. But you go in there and it's, you know, all the players come in, all the musicians, and all of them are there because they have gained some proficiency in their particular instrument and are there. They sit down and they begin to tune. And it doesn't sound really good. You're hearing the scales. Somebody's playing a C scale and someone else is playing a D scale and and the horns are playing and it's just kind of noisy as they tune and prepare. And then all of a sudden at a certain point, the concert master steps up. Typically, it's the first chair violinist. And when the concert master steps up, not behind the podium, but to the side of the podium, everybody stops. And then they play one note. And everybody plays a corresponding note on their instrument. And then they play a second note, and there's a corresponding note. And then they sit down and they wait. And the conductor comes out. And we all clap for the conductor. And he steps up and he begins and he makes eye contact with them. And he leads them through this piece of music, each instrument playing their part. But it's all being orchestrated. And actually it was initially orchestrated not by the conductor, but there was a composer. There was a composer who took and wrote every piece of music for every instrument and had the ability to know how one would sound to the other. And he arranged it, and now they are orchestrating. They are living it. Divine orchestration is like that. God, the divine composer, but we each need to choose to step into what he sets for us. As it turned out, not at all. God was at work behind the scenes. God had a plan. And so God, however he did it, whether it was a prompting, whether Ruth walked up to the field and said, this one looks good, this one looks, this heart, this field looks healthy, she walked in. Not as it turned out. God was at work divinely orchestrating. God's behind the scenes arranging the events and connections of my life so that I have the choice to grant me the choice to join him. Ruth stepped into God's divine orchestration. So Ruth goes in and she begins to get some grain. And she's in the field of Boaz from the clan of Elimelech. And we come to scene two. Scene two opens, and there's Ruth out just out gleaning, gathering stalks, and, and Boaz shows up. Boaz shows up, and, and uh, he, he greets his people, and he begins to talk about Ruth. And as we look at the book of Ruth, as we look at this scene, let me give you a second principle for divine orchestration, because it's going to become very important. It's simply this, divine orchestration is best seen in reverse. What do you mean by that? Divine orchestration, I don't always know it when it's happening. But when I take a glance back and I go, oh, God did this, this, and this so that I ended up here. Oh, it's best seen in reverse. 
we don't always know exactly how it worked until we look back and we saw the hand of God. And I would encourage you this morning, don't sit there and stare back at your past life, but every now and then take a glance back. In fact, in the Bible, we have certain instances where God tells people to look back. When the children of Israel, some 400 plus years earlier than Ruth, went across the Jordan River, God told a leader from each tribe to go back into the river while it was dried up and to get a great big old stone and to bring it back, and they were going to build this pillar. And they said, why are we building this? So that someday when your children say, why are those stones there, you can tell them what God did. Why is baptism important? Because someday when you look back and say, why am I following Christ? You can say, oh, I'm doing that because one day I committed to do that. And even though life is difficult, I'm going to keep going. Divine orchestration is best seen in reverse. And I would encourage you, take some time, even this afternoon, take a glance back. Look at the people God brought into your life. Look at the people, that the, the events that happened that just seemed to be the right thing at the right time. And realize God is divinely orchestrating your life. So in this second scene, as Boaz comes in, he greets his workers. He gives them a really interesting greeting. He actually uses the divine name. Here's a tip for you in your Bibles. If you're reading your Bible and you see the word Lord in the Old Testament and it's all caps, it's Yahweh. That's the the word that's translated. And so... uh, Boaz uses the divine name, Yahweh, the Lord bless you, and and the Lord be with you. They said, the Lord bless you. They responded in kind. This is is happening, as we saw in Act 1, in the middle of the judges. Remember, we talked about the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So in the midst of this time of Israel that's really dark, and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, there's one guy at least probably more, but one guy right now who used the divine name, who believed that God was with him, who greeted his workers that way. He is a man of power and influence and standing, and it appears that he puts God first in a time when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. He's also an observant man. He comes in and he enters and And he says, who's that? Who's that young lady over there? Now, remember, we're not talking about a metropolis. We're talking about a village. Have you ever grown up in a small town? Small town, everybody knows everybody. If you're the newcomer to a small town, everybody knows it. You walk into a store in a small town and somebody goes, oh, you're the, oh, yeah, yeah, you just moved into so-and-so's house. Everybody knows it. So it's possible that's happening. It's possible because in that time when you were a widow, you wore widow's clothing. So he notices not only a stranger, he notices a stranger who's a widow, and he asks, who is that? And his overseer And the overseer was typically a younger man that just made sure everything went well. His overseer answers him. And these verses are a little hard to translate, but I've begun to see them in a different light. 
See, sometimes we look at these next two verses and we say, everybody was just on Ruth's team. Everybody was for Ruth. I don't think so. Everybody was not for Ruth because she was a stranger. She was a Moabite. She was part of the clan of Moab that had stopped Israel from getting bread. She was part of the clan of Moab that had hired Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. She is not one of us. He says, she's the Moabite. And that word Moabite could be Moabite damsel, Moabite woman. She's that Moabite woman who came from Moab with Naomi. I'm, yes, I'm putting my own inflection in that because I don't think this was like, ooh, what a great woman. I don't think he was happy. Go on. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. Stop. One of the things we're learning on our Wednesday night study is to read for details. So go back up to verse 2 and see what the narrator says. Let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. She is gathering among the sheaves. What's important about that? Well, when a harvester back in that day would go in and they would gather the, 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 like the barley or the wheat, they would take all the stalks and they would put them up in a kind of a, like a, a lean-to, like a teepee, like a tent, and they would wrap around them. They would stand there. And that was the stuff that was saved to go to the threshing floor. The gleaners would come and pick up the stuff that was off the ground. So he's painting this picture. Ruth is going up to, because she's a Moabite, she is going up to the stalks that we've already fed there, and she's pulling stuff out. She's not doing that. But he's trying to paint a picture for Boaz. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest at the shelter. Is she industrious? Yes, but maybe she's taking more than her share. She's a Moabite. She came from Moab. She's taking from the sheaves. Kick her out, Boaz. Get rid of her, Boaz. We don't need her kind. She's not even resting. She is just working so hard. She's taking more than her share. I may be wrong about that. But the more I read it, it made sense. Boaz isn't phased. Notice what he does. He goes to her and he says, my daughter, listen to me. Using that phrase, that's the same phrase that Naomi uses. That's a tender phrase. It's also a phrase that could be indicating the age difference between the two. I told the young ladies when we were back in my office that my sandals that I wear when I baptize are probably older than them. <laughs> There's an age difference. There's an age difference. And Boaz says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Some scholarship believed that, that Ruth was leaving. That Boaz goes and tracks her down because she was leaving. Because he talks about, uh, verse 9, I told my, the men not to lay a hand on you. Let me tell you, for a single woman, widow, in a situation like the judges where everyone did right in their own eyes, it was not even physically safe. There is possibility that Ruth had already been somehow accosted, somehow uh, 
you know, a, a little bit physically accosted, maybe not to the nth degree, but something that had made her uncomfortable enough that maybe she's leaving. And Boaz tracks her down and says, don't go. Stay here. Stay with the women who work for me. And, and then he gives her instructions. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. Follow after the women. I've told them not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, you go over here and get drink of water from the jars that the men have filled. You come and be part of my team. Ruth is blown away. She bows down with her face to the ground and she asks him, why? Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you even notice me a foreigner? All of a sudden, Ruth feels seen. She's not invisible anymore. All of a sudden, Ruth feels accepted. Why? Because this man followed the law of God. Here was a man who was loving his neighbor as himself. Maybe that day, Boaz had reflected on Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34, that says this, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Boaz is an example of that. Ruth, all of a sudden, feels seen. Ruth feels valued. Ruth feels accepted. Ruth begins to feel safe. And Boaz replies to her question. This is small town talk now, right? I've been told. <laughs> it's the talk of the town, Ruth. Whether you know it or not, we all know who you are. Whether you believe it or not, we all know what you did. And, and it's actually pretty cool. I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. This is the first time somebody acknowledges the difficulty of Ruth's life. You remember it came, it's Naomi the widow, Naomi the widow, but now it's, I know, I know about the death of your husband. Man, that must be hard. Life is difficult. And yet here you are. I know how you've been kind to your mother-in-law. I know how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. I know that you've forsaken everything. You've come here. Ruth, I know. I, I've heard. And then he says this, and it's almost a prophetic line in the book. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Wow. Can just, just take for a minute and try to imagine Ruth. Alone, with a mother-in-law who also is a widow, largely destitute, feeling like an outcast, feeling like a foreigner, and now she is seen. She is safe. She is protected. And this man offers a blessing to her. And he tells her, you've taken refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. Ruth says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have 
Put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have standing among one of your servants. Get the wordplay? Boaz is a man of standing. He's a man of importance. His servants, because they're Boaz's servants, among the servants, they have standing. Ruth says, I'm not even one of your servants, and yet you've shown me so much kindness, and you've made me at ease. I feel safe. But it doesn't end there. At mealtime, Boaz in front of everybody, calls Ruth over and tells her to sit by him. And so here he's modeling grace and compassion. He's modeling the grace and compassion of the God of Israel, of Yahweh, that he spoke. And, and you know, when I saw that and I saw that mealtime, I stopped again and I went, wow. When I look at Boaz, I see a... a, a a, a word picture, a human word picture of, of the kindness and grace of our God. And, and I ask this question of myself. And so I'll ask it of you when people interact with me. What picture of God do they see? When people interact with me, what picture of God do they see? Let me put it this way. Uh, Fridays, I have a certain couple blogs I read uh, on a regular basis and on Friday there's a guest writer on the one blog that I read and he's a retired recently retired pastor and every time I read something that he writes it's like yeah yeah that's right well this week by God's divine orchestration he used something that I actually can use as an illustration here he talked about uh, as pastors, and we're always, trust me, we're always looking for that sermon illustration. You know, that one illustration that's just going to, yeah, that drives it home, and people are going to go, glory, and they're going to, you know, we're always looking for that. And he said, you know, sometimes we just have to realize that every person that we are preaching to has the potential of being God's best sermon illustration. When people see you, when people interact with you, do they get a, and then they find out that you follow Christ, do they get a sense of who God is? You see, one of the things that should never happen to any of us is someone go, well, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want to be one. And that's what happens sometimes, right? I've, I've heard that myself. You know, I, I've heard people, oh, if they go to so-and-so's church, I don't want to go to that church. I'm thinking, oh, good, it's not my church. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's a, and, but I am, I am, Oftentimes, and you are oftentimes, in fact, more times than you might imagine, we are God's best sermon illustration. Because when people see us, and maybe they see that we're kind to the person at work that nobody's kind to. Maybe we, they see us pay attention to the student at school that everybody kind of shuns. Maybe we're just kind of helping out our neighbor when our neighbor needs help. Do we reflect the God that we say we believe? When people interact with me, what picture of God do they see? And if Act 2 ended right here with Boaz just inviting Ruth over to the meal, we would have a ton to think about, but it doesn't end there. In front of all his workers, in front of even that overseer, he invites Ruth not only to the meal, he invites her to his table. Remember in high school? Well, for some of us it's a memory, for some of us it's a reality. You know, And we go to lunch, there was always... That table. I had my table to guys. We always had lunch together. You know, it was our table. Someone else came and sat at our table that was a stranger that nobody kind of stood up for. It's kind of like, what are you doing here? You know, how come he's at our table? 
Did you invite? No, I didn't invite him. Why is he at our table? You know? Yeah, and so the table is important. Having somebody at a meal at your table is important. Some of the best conversations you have are over a meal. Food is so significant in relationships. And so it's the mealtime. And Ruth's going to sit over there and maybe take a little bit of the grain she's harvested, just kind of chew on it. And Boaz says, no, come on over. Sit by me. Sit at my table. Here, here's some bread to eat. Dip it in oil. A little olive oil, a little salt, a little pepper, a little garlic. Dip it in there. Mm, it's good stuff. Here's some roasted grain. This isn't just the raw grain. It's been roasted. Have some. Eat till you're full. We'll see in a minute. He pulled out a little plastic leftover bag, and he said, here, put the rest of it in here and take it home. You know, he gave her the leftovers. We'll see that in a minute. She gets to go up to work, and Boaz then talks to his men. He calls them over. They have like a team meeting, and he gives them orders. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. What she was accused of doing earlier, he now says, nope, she gets to do that. And you do not let, reprimand her. You don't lay a hand on her. You, do not, you protect her. You're messing with her, you're messing with me. And, and she stands up for her. He even tells them, as you're going along and you get a really nice stalk, just leave it for Ruth. I mean, he takes care of her. When I was a youth pastor, we had a kid in our youth group. We had a sizable youth group. It was senior year. He decided we were not the church for him. We were not the youth group for him. I was not the youth pastor for him. He was out of here. He was going to, you pick the other church on the other end of town. And it came time for senior gifts. And I sat down with my senior pastor, and we were talking about things. And I sat down with my mentor. I said, you know, we're not going to give a gift to Billy Bob. I know his parents are still here. I know his mom is the absolute best nursery worker ever in the planet. Uh, but he's been this way. He's been so negative and everything. I don't think it's right to honor him. My mentor sat there for a minute. And then usually when he was about to make a point, he would take a big breath. <sighs> and then he told me words I've never forgotten that really show me who Boaz was too. He said, Scott, if you are going to err, err on the side of grace. Get a, get a gift for that kid. Call him and ask him to come and be here for the presentation. That's what Boaz did. Boaz said, if I'm going to make a mistake, I'm going to make a mistake on the side of grace. If I'm going to mess up, then it's going to be where I invite Ruth over to my table and I give her grain and I give her bread and I give her leftovers. If I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of grace. If you and I err, let's err on the side of grace. You know, I, you know what? I've never been, I, well, maybe never is too strong, but I can't recall ever being sorry for erring on the side of grace. I don't walk away erring on the side of grace with regrets. I did not, you know, it was so interesting. I called that young man's mom up. I said, by the way, we're going to give Billy Bob a, a gift for senior. I know he doesn't come here anymore, but we want to honor him. And we want to honor you. She wept. She cried. 
thank you, thank you, thank you. By the way, we're Facebook friends today, so, you know, uh, everything turned out well. Uh, but if you're going to err, err on the side of grace. The curtain closes with Boaz telling the men not to rebuke her, and the final scene of Act 2 opens in verse 17. Ruth gleans in the field till evening. She threshes the barley. She gathered it. It amounted to about an ephah. Let me just kind of put that in today's language. It was about 30 pounds of grain. Can you imagine? I mean, it was a lot. It was, it was a lot. There are some scholars out there who reason that if Ruth gathered uh, for the whole two months of the barley and wheat harvest, that she probably had enough grain to take care of her and Naomi for a year. And, you know, she goes home to Naomi. She brings out the roasted grain and the bread from the meal. Naomi is just amazed. She, you know, it's like any of us when our kids come home from a, an initial thing. Tell me what happened. How'd it go? What'd you do? Who'd you talk to? You know, did you make new friends? You know, we, we do that, right? She, tell me what happened. Tell me everything. She wants to know all about it. Where did you glean? And she goes, I don't know. I gleaned in a field, and there was this amazing man, and, and, and he told me to stay here and to glean with his people. And, oh, by the way, I think his name is Boaz. Look at Naomi. Verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He, has not, he, the Lord, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. How is God showing kindness to the dead? Well, we will learn that. In just, let me finish this sentence. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. By the way, I don't know why they did that. It should just use the old school word. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. What an important phrase. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. All of a sudden, Naomi has hope. Where there was no hope before, she has hope. She has hope that this could be an answer. She does not know what chapters 3 and 4 hold. She's not there yet. We do, but she doesn't. I mean, she sees this man, he's a close relative, he's a kinsman redeemer. God is showing me his kindness. He's showing the kindness to the living because he's going to take care of Naomi and Ruth, but he's showing the kindness to the dead, to Elimelech, because there's the possibility that now Elimelech's line won't die and that there could be an heir for Elimelech's property. And so she is excited. There is strong recognition Naomi sees this. This kinsman redeemer is a role that's described in Leviticus 25 and again in Leviticus 27. And, and, and we have to remember, we don't have anything like this in our culture. The land was so important and the land staying within the family was so important. And in fact, some of the kinsman redeemer laws allow that if a, a person was so poor that they had to sell their family's land just to make ends meet, that a kinsman redeemer, a family member, could go and buy that property and keep it in the family, in the clan. And the same thing happened when a woman was a widow and she had no heirs. And she would lose all of that property, but the kinsman redeemer could come and buy the property and keep it in there. And sometimes the kinsman redeemer would follow what's called the leveret marriage. And he would marry the widow and they would have a son. And the first son born to that marriage became the, took the name of his dead father. And he inherited the land. Naomi knows all of this. And she's excited. Ruth, not so much. Not so aware of it. She's just kind of probably a little deer in headlights. 
But Naomi says he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. There are several. But by the way, the kinsman redeemer had to choose to step up. Because it is costly for the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer is absorbing the cost, absorbing the debt, absorbing all that's there and and absorbing it to himself and not passing it along to the widow. He's taking it on. So they wait. Naomi says to Ruth, verse 22, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. Twice in this chapter, there's the warning of being harmed. Boaz said, stay with my folks. And Naomi says, yes. And Naomi's not looking at that as, hey, here's a possible dude. You know what? Ruth is not a 21st century dating manual, okay? Ruth is a book about God and how God works. Nowhere have Ruth and Naomi started thinking, that Boaz guy, he's pretty sharp. I'm swiping left or swiping right or whichever way you swipe. You know, nowhere's that. It's the idea that he's a protector. He's a good man. He is being Yahweh to us. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. And the curtain closes on Act 2. The curtain closes on Act 2 with Ruth and Naomi going about their daily lives. For the next two months, Ruth is going to go into the field every day and glean barley or then the wheat harvest. And she's going to live with Naomi. And so there, there's the hope, but it's not hope that's not realized yet. Let me leave you with two final applications this morning. Boaz shows himself to be a true man of faith a true follower of Yahweh. And you know what? It's interesting, as I thought about Boaz, I reflected on a passage in the New Testament in the book of James that shows us a word picture of Boaz. It's James 1.27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Boaz was not polluted by the everyone does what's right in their own eyes. He followed the Lord. Boaz looked out after this widow, after both widows in a sense. He cared for the vulnerable in a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Would that we who call ourselves followers of Jesus follow that example. But there's a second application We've already seen today two individuals who expressed their faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Each of us have the privilege of being in a faith relationship with the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Hebrews 2.11 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call those of us who put our faith in him brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call those of us who put our faith in him brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to look at us and say, you're family. You're part of my clan. He's not ashamed of that. And the end of that chapter says this about Jesus. In verse 16, for this reason he had to or make he had to be made like them, Abraham's descendants. Verse 16, verse 16 and verse 17 then says, 
He had to be made like them. Jesus had to be made like you and me, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he is tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus became like us, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it means to be lonely. Jesus knows what it means to be rejected. Jesus knows what it means to be loved. Jesus knows how to love. He became like us. He became like he was tempted, and he got through the temptation. He can help us when we're tempted. He is our kinsman redeemer. Jesus, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, paid the ultimate price of his life so that we could be redeemed and placed in the family of God and be joint heirs with Jesus. In that family, in the family of God, you are seen. In the family of God, you are accepted. In the family of God, you are cared for. In the family of God, you are known. In the family of God, you are valuable. In the family of God, he makes you righteous so that you and I can be acceptable before a holy and righteous God. And when we sin, and we will... We have an advocate in Jesus who intercedes for us and who forgives us when we confess our sin. I hope today that everybody here knows your kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. I would encourage you this week, as you go through your week, as you go through today, take a, take a glance back. Look at those, what you thought were lucky breaks or just perchance and look for God's hand and see how he has divinely orchestrated your life. Ask God to help those that you interact with to see him through you, to see him through your normal, routine, daily interactions of life. And remember, if you err this week, err on the side of grace. Life is difficult. But in his divine orchestration, God is constantly bringing people into our lives to help us transcend to that reality. In his divine orchestration, God is constantly arranging circumstances, events to give us the strength we need to move on. And he gives us the privilege of coming alongside others and doing the very same thing. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this drama of Ruth. Thank you for the lessons that we're learning. But it's not enough to learn them in this room and to go our own way. We need to apply and live what we hear. May we not just be hearers of the word today, but may we do, be doers as well. In Jesus' name, amen.